Hey guys, it's Allie. Welcome back to Infertile Life, the podcast. This is episode 94 called Ellen. Okay guys, so today I am talking about a topic on the podcast that I've actually never talked about before, but it's so important and it's so interesting and it's about addiction and infertility and how addiction, and in this case, alcohol addiction, plays into infertility and one's infertility story. So today I'm talking to Ellen, who I will add is sober and has been for almost four years, but she's going to tell us all about how her serious drinking problem played a role in her infertility story. It's really interesting. She's going to talk about Clomid and hiding vodka while she was doing that the problems that she ended up having with her husband because of her drinking and also his drinking and what happened when she went to rehab and then what happened when she got out of rehab. So I just want to thank Ellen for talking about this topic. It isn't covered very often and I'm so glad that she opened up here. So without further ado, this is Ellen's infertility story. Hey, Ellen, thank you so much for doing this today. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. You sent me this essay that you had written and it was like, whoa. And I wrote you right back and I was like, yes, we, I want to talk to you. Just because, you know, the essay was, it was entertaining and it was kind of funny and it was got dark and all the things. So tell me just kind of from the beginning, did you always want to have kids? Yes. So... I always did want to have kids and I usually wanted, I, I remember when I was really little, I joked that I wanted like 10 kids cause I didn't really know what I didn't know anything, you know, but now that I have kids, I'm like, yeah, two is good. Um, <laughs> but yes, I've always wanted kids and it's always been like a big part of my family. Like I grew up with a brother, so I never wanted just one kid. I wanted to have more than one that they could grow up and be friends and all of that type of thing. So I've always been good with kids. I always nannied and Mm -hmm. babysat and did things like that. And then my mom always joked that she wanted 12 kids. So I think it's just in our family, you know, in our genes. We love love the babies. Right. And there was one thing I'm trying to pull up the essay again, because there was a line in there that I feel like I've written like the same line as you, but it was basically about how when you're going through you know, sex education as a young woman, all you're taught is to how not to get pregnant. You don't know exactly anything about your own body. And this has been coming up more and more. And I really want to be part of the change with this and like try to craft some new like education. But tell me about that experience for you. So it's probably the same as what I went through. It was just like, you can get pregnant so easily. Don't do it. Exactly. Yeah. So it was basically just like, never have sex, you know, wait till you're married And I had no idea how ovulation worked. And I just knew that, you know, if you get your period, you're not pregnant, basically. (laughs) And and for me, it was so hard because I didn't get my period till I was 16. So even if I had, I mean, I was a virgin still, but if I had been having sex before that, it's like, I wouldn't have known any different. Like if I was going to become pregnant or not without a period, you know, like, right. 
just don't teach you any of these things. And sex ed is just like laughable. It's just so... Yeah. I don't even... It's, it's really I, deficient. So I found it. The line yeah. you said was, I didn't realize how clueless I was about my own body until I actually was trying to get pregnant. Exactly. And I remember thinking that same exact thing when I was yep. going through secondary infertility. And I was like, I never knew this could be so hard. And then you find <sighs> out there's the window is actually so damn small. And the fact that exactly. people have babies at all is just right. mind-blowing. Exactly. And so it's like, oh, you actually have approximately like a 12 to 24 hour window that your ovulation is perfect and you need to take your temperature and it needs to be this amount. And if it's right. not, then it's not quite good enough and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, why don't they just teach girls in high school to take their temperatures every morning so they know if they're ovulating then don't have sex that day? <laughs> you know, like there's <laughs> probably better ways to do some sex ed. I don't know. But right. anyway. So you were um, on birth control, right? And then yes. So probably- I got on birth control just because I my I was so wonky. Like I never had a regular period ever, and so the birth control really just finally flattened it out and got it regulated. Um, and so I never really thought anything of it. You know, I was just on it. Like I got on it before I even started having sex. And then once I was having sex, it was like, okay, well, I need to have beyond this all the time. So it was never in my, never in my mind was I like, oh, I've been on this for, you know, now it's been five years, now it's seven, now it's 10. Maybe I should stop because it could be an issue getting pregnant later. So, okay. So then you and your husband are together. I think another really interesting piece of this story is you started drinking pretty heavily. Yes. As you you say. So Tell me about that. Like what, what's, tell me about your relationship with alcohol. So for me, it, my story is actually, um, I have a whole addiction story as well. So <laughs> I do podcasts for recovery because I'm uh-huh. currently sober. And so I no longer drink alcohol whatsoever because I can't drink like a normal person. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so basically like in high school, you know, I drank a little bit in high school, but wasn't really out of control until the last like few years that I was drinking were just really bad. And we were doing a lot of the fertility stuff in that time frame. Okay. And so, I mean, I was always just drank every day at five, you know, had a cocktail and then drank wine at dinner, beer at dinner. Like I drank every day all the time, but it mm-hmm. wasn't like I was getting wasted every day mm-hmm. until the end. So you know, just the stress of all the fertility treatments and knowing that it may not be working mm-hmm. making me drink more. Yeah. And worse <laughs> for getting pregnant. But really, I realized that I probably did have a serious drinking problem when we started trying. And my husband, like when I started actually taking like the Clomid and the things that you legit could get pregnant from, I still didn't quit drinking. And even when we thought it was like a, it was like the two week wait wait or whatever, Mm -hmm. um, I kept drinking throughout the two week wait. And my husband was like, don't you think you should probably not Mm -hmm. if you're possibly pregnant? Yeah. Oh no, it's fine. It's just wine today. You know, I'm not drinking vodka anymore because, you know, I would just make up whatever possible excuse. And so at that was the point when I was like, shit, 
I'm, I'm drinking like this is an issue. If I can't stop drinking for my babies and this is what I've wanted forever, right? Like this is a big problem. But um, that's the power of addiction, right? I mean, exactly. it is a disease. Like, you know, it is, it's not yeah. like a behavior as you well know, you know, it's beyond behavioral choices. It's like, right. you know, it's bigger than that. Right. Exactly. And so I always knew that I liked drinking and I liked to party and I was just, you know, the fun party girl or whatever, but it was pretty much, that was kind of the point where I was like, how are you going to have a family if you can't quit, you know, type yeah. thing. But right. in the back of my mind, like I wasn't ready yet. So I'm grateful that we didn't, I'm kind of grateful that I struggled getting pregnant because I wasn't ready to quit drinking yet. So mm-hmm. it, like, you know, all of it worked out how it was supposed to, but Tell me about, you wrote about being on Clomid and you just mentioned it too. So tell me about that. Like, how did it affect you? And were the doctor, like, was your doctor saying, did they know about the drinking? Were you hiding it? I was hiding it for sure. Okay. I mean, I told him I drank like, I told him I drank four drinks a day. And in my mind, I was like, nah, four bottles, you know, four drinks, whatever. Right, right, Um, right. So basically my husband and I got married and we knew we wanted kids. So like immediately the month after our honeymoon, I just stopped taking birth control. So that was the first time I'd ever been off the pill. And my OB told me, you know, wait a year, like be off birth control for a year. And usually most people get pregnant within that year. So a year went by, nothing was happening. And so... I had another follow-up and said, you know, it's been a year since this. And she said, okay, so the next step would be Clomid. So yeah, I don't, I don't have any side effects. There's nothing, you know, I was just taking the pill and, uh, you know, tracking your ovulation and stuff. So I would do the little pee sticks and note when I was ovulating, I was just really bad about tracking my temperature because I'm the worst morning person ever. And I was like, I don't want to get up at the same time every morning and take my temperature. And this is when I was still drinking anyway. So I was like, so hungover all the time. Mm-hmm. And I didn't want I was like, I don't want to get up at six on weekends to take my temperature. <laughs> so yeah, so I wasn't very good at the temperature part, but I was good at everything else. So, you know, I, I was getting positive ovulations, ovulation predictor kits or whatever. Uh Um, And so, you know, we were timing sex accordingly and nothing was happening and nothing was happening. And they, so let's see, once I did that for, like I said, I think about eight cycles, the OB said, this is probably something you need to start seeing a specialist for. And they started doing Clomid and timing it with IUIs. He says, the magazines are the worst. They're, he didn't touch any of them. He was like, it was <laughs> the most uncomfortable experience ever in his life. He was like, oh my God, it's nothing like what oh. they show on movies. Uh-huh. But it's just like so awkward and terrible. And I'm just sitting in the other room like, boop doo Right. Yeah, we did a couple of IUIs too. They're, yeah, interesting so, process. None of it is sexy at all. It's like, oh my gosh. Yeah. So we did four of those. They were Uh, all, obviously none of those worked out. I mean, in my mind, I just knew. I was like, IVF is going to be what we have to end up doing. But Mm. um, 
you know, we kind of had to go through everything and Mm -hmm. covered, like, why isn't IVF covered? It's absolutely insane. Yes. It's just the cost of it is like, like Bella basically blew her college fund by IVF. She can't go. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I know. But I, I kind of knew deep down that IVF is what we would end up doing, but I was just hoping that you know, one of the IUIs would stick, but it didn't. And we were getting, this is when my drinking also was getting like so bad. And mm-hmm. so we weren't even like, like Ian wanted, Ian's my husband. He was ready to divorce me. Like he was ready to leave. And so we were kind of like, why are we even trying to have these babies now? Like, is this, it was all just really, it was a bad, bad yeah. time. If, if you don't mind, I'm going to read a little bit of what you wrote about that okay. time. And you were saying that with the Clomid, would I even be able to stop drinking? I didn't think I could. I was terrified for my baby that it would be born with fetal alcohol syndrome because of my drinking. I was so selfish. I wasn't telling anyone about my fears and lying to all the doctors about how much I drank. And then you're saying our marriage was already on the rocks due to the drinking mainly, but also because we wanted to start a family so badly and it was not working, which led to more drinking. It was just an endless circle of destruction. Exactly. Which I think, thank you, by the way, for sharing that because I don't think people talk about that much. And the hundreds of people that I've interviewed so far for this podcast, we've, we haven't delved into any addiction, which is interesting. Because yeah, that is interesting. You know, it's out there, obviously. Right. So thank you for, you know, coming of course. Talk about this with me. Yeah. So anyway, so tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. What was going on with you guys like emotionally and how close did you get to splitting up? Well, so he had a divorce lawyer. I didn't know this at the time, but he, he was pretty much done with yeah. me. And I mean, I was, I was pretty much blackout every night at this mm-hmm. point. Mm-hmm. Drunk. And he also was drinking a lot because he was trying to deal with me. Like he didn't, it was just awful, like mm-hmm. drinking a ton. So I was like, well, obviously you're the alcoholic. You're, you know, <laughs> you're drinking too and just trying to make it anyone else's fault. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically there were just several really bad incidences that like there was one incident where I called him from the car in a blackout and I was driving. I just went silent like as I was driving and he thought I was just going to die. He had to come find me somehow. So I, I drove like across the city in a complete blackout. I don't remember any of it. Um, Where do you live? In Colorado Springs. Okay. It's about 65 miles south of, south of Denver. Mm -hmm. And he found me passed out in a parking lot and, uh, you know, just really scary things like that. And, I still wanted to keep drinking after that. It just got to the point where I was like drinking in the morning before work, like throughout the day. Mm-hmm. And then I finally just reached this point where I was like, I can't be drunk all day, every day for my whole life. I need to figure my shit out. Like I need to go to rehab. So to me, I was, I mean, I was drunk, so I don't know. To me, I thought we would stay together through anything, you know, like, Mm -hmm. but to him, he was like ready to get divorced. What about other people in your life, like family members or friends, were people like trying to, you know, intervene and like, 
I am really good at, I was a very functioning alcoholic. Mm, um, okay. I mean, my family knew of certain incidences and stuff that were really bad, but like I got to work every day and, you know, I never had DUIs or like mm-hmm. any issue, like from the outside, it didn't look like anything was wrong. Right. You never got caught, <laughs> basically, yes, right? Exactly, exactly. You easily could have, it sounds like, at least the right. one time. Yeah, yeah. okay. Well, uh, every day, basically. Yeah. Um, but so, I mean, they knew it was that we were having issues, but we just, or I just talked it up to the stress of not being able to get pregnant, you know? But as soon as I said... I needed help and needed like rehab, you know, everyone swooped in totally supportive, both my family and his family, Ian's family is in town. So, um, both of our families are here. So I did end up going to a place in, it's called Palmer Lake, but it's really close to Colorado Springs. So I did like a 28 day stay in the middle of all the treatments of like the IUIs and stuff. Uh huh. So I know I wrote in the, in the essay about the little, the onesie. Yeah. I was just going to ask you about that. Yeah. So I had bought this onesie for Ian the first month I did Clomid. So, you know, a year and a half, however long ago before this rehab stay, I bought this onesie with a little elephant on it. And it said, Hey daddy, can't wait to meet you. Mommy says you're awesome. Something <laughs> like that. And mm-hmm. it was so cute. It was just like this little newborn onesie, you know? Mm-hmm. And that was going to be what I like wrapped up and gave to him after I got a positive pregnancy test. Cause mm-hmm. of course I didn't know we were going to have all these issues. And I thought it would be something that I just like missed my period and found out on my own and then would tell him, you know? Right. So I had this whole like elaborate little thing. I wanted him that to be his little, that to be how he found out that. I yes. Was that's so um, sweet. So I had that hidden, you know, for a year and a half. And so it's also, I was also hiding vodka everywhere. So when I said I needed to go to rehab, they, my parents and Ian went through all the closets looking to make sure they got everything out of the house. And so he found the onesie. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was just absolutely, he said he like dropped to his knees and was just sobbing, just, you know, complete heart shatter. Right, exactly. As I'm like passed out in bed in the middle of the day because I'm wasted, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's just so, it's such a meaningful thing. So I, I was like, where did you, did you see this? certain bag. Like I didn't want him to know about it because I still didn't know if he had found it. Right. Okay. Did did you find this gym bag? Like what bags did you go through? You know, there's just, I'm missing something. And of course when you're like, I'm missing something, uh, people are, when you're going to rehab and you're like sketchy about what you're (laughs) missing, they're like, (laughs) (laughs) so I couldn't, it was just goofy. I didn't want to tell him it was the onesie, but at the same time, I was just acting totally sketchy. So, yeah. 
finally, the night before I went in, he pulled it out and he was like, I found this. And I knew this is what you were asking me about, but I wanted you to know that I found it. And we both just started sobbing. And he oh was my like, gosh. this is what you need to go get better for. Like, this is why you need to stay sober. And yes. This, we can't have a family if you're not you, you know, who you mm-hmm. need to be. And so I ended up bringing the onesie with me to rehab. And I kept wow. it in my drawer. Yeah. Yeah. So I looked at it every day. Yeah. Like what kind of got me through everything. Right. Because rehab's not really the coolest place to go. <laughs> <laughs> How was that rehab experience for you? Did you just go? I know people often have to go multiple times. Cause I know. So I get sober. I have not had to go again. You went the one time and it worked, huh? Yep. So far. Wow. Congratulations. That's huge. Yeah, thank you. It's been three and a half years. Wow. That I've been sober. So um, I am definitely one of the few. I think one other person that I know from my stay there is still sober. Uh huh. But most people do have several rehab stays. Um, yeah. Not to say I won't need another one later. You never know, but hopefully not. But yeah, so it it is just kind of the usual. <laughs> kind of what you see in the movies when you all sit in a circle and yeah did you have to go through like detox and stuff so I did I detoxed on my own at home um which isn't safe don't do that if anyone's listening thinking they want to do that you should definitely do it with medical attention yes but I should also um, add here that this is not a medical podcast exactly (laughs) two girlfriends talking so if you have any you know problems with substance abuse talk to your doctor get help exactly but I so Thursday was the last day I drank um and Tuesday was the day I went into rehab so I had that whole weekend my um like Ian took my wallet and car away and like I was pretty much on lockdown the whole weekend. So I didn't go anywhere. I thought about Ubering to the liquor store, but I was like, nope, they'll find me. Like I literally, I thought of a a few ways to get more alcohol, but I they did a great job making it hard and I knew it was pointless anyway. I was like, what's the point? Mm-hmm. If I'm going to go in. So anyway, I forget where I was going with that. So but. you went you went to rehab and you wrote January 12th, 2017 was the last day you drank alcohol. Yes. Wow. Exactly. Oh, you asked about detox. Okay. So, oh yeah. So I basically detoxed on my own. By the time I got there on Tuesday, they do like a full physical on you. Mm-hmm. And, and I was like the only one that was sober. They said most people legitimately do go get as fucked up as possible before rehab apparently. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> a handful of friends that I've had that have gone in have done that, yeah. drinking on the way. I know. I was like, shoot, I should have, I guess, done it differently. No, I'm just kidding. The way I did it was fine. But yeah, some people were like, yeah, I was doing lines of Coke and marijuana in the parking lot and all yep. this stuff. I'm like, all right. Yep. But so since I had basically detoxed on my own, I only, I was able to go immediately into I was out of the detox area of rehab and into the like livable area. Right. Okay. Because they're separate because detox is super shitty and you get like, you don't have to start going to classes and doing stuff like that yet. You're just literally trying to get everything out of your body. Right. 
So yeah, I did that. And I ended up doing, I think I did 21 days and then I did another three weeks of outpatient. So it ended up being like a six week thing. Okay. And then since then, now I, you know, do AA and all of that stuff. So mm-hmm. do you go to meetings um, every day? I was the first year I did yeah. pretty well. Now I have like a set schedule that I stick to and I know what meetings I like and which ones yeah. I go to. But COVID, everything's weird. So it's all on. Um, right. There's all Zoom, on Zoom now. now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is kind of cool. Like I, I can do, if I feel like it, I could just randomly sign into like a California AA meeting on right. Zoom. But <laughs> yeah, no, that is kind of cool. Yeah. It's, it's totally interesting, but yeah. So that was in the middle of everything. And so that, that was January. So I got out of rehab in February. And so we were like, we we just needed to deal with that and not try to bring babies into the picture anymore for a few months. We wanted to make sure like everything was going okay with me being sober and stuff. So... How long before you guys started to try again? I feel like I did rehab before I started doing the IUIs. So I feel like I had only done Clomid up until rehab. Mm-hmm. Um, and then after rehab, I want to say it was probably a good September, October is when we started again uh-huh. um, with the IUIs. So January, February, about half a year trying to just to see how I was sober and all that. And so we started doing the IUIs and those all failed. I just remember the first sober Christmas I had Mm -hmm. was around the first time I started doing all the injections for shots into my stomach. I don't know why that's all just coming to me now, but yeah. Yeah. So it was about a year from rehab is when we started doing like the hardcore, like stomach shots and everything along mm-hmm. with the IUIs. So we stopped using Clomid before rehab. And then after rehab, we just started up with injections when we restarted everything. So, so how was that going into the IVF territory? I was terrified of needles before this whole process. And now I'm like, I should just get tattoos everywhere. I'm fine. Needles are great. Like... <laughs> I'm just so used to being poked and prodded. Right, exactly. It's absolutely absurd. There's been more people fiddling around with my body that I'm just like, whatever. (laughs) Yeah, you wrote something about so many people being up in your (laughs) hoo-ha. Yeah. (laughs) Like, yup, pretty much. Yep, pretty much every single person. The first month we did it, it was so ridiculous because, you know, you go and they train you, like they show you how to do it, but you're not actually doing it at that time. They're just like showing you. So when you actually have to do it on your own body, it's completely different. And um, whatever, they sent us the wrong size needles and it was on a weekend, of course. And so the first stomach shot I did with like this ridiculously huge needle. Oh my God, the big ones. (laughs) Yes. The huge, big needle. Yes. The and ones for the like, like progesterone, progesterone yes. and oil. Yes. They're, like very thick. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck is this? This is insane. This is awful. After that, it was fine. <laughs> yeah. Once we got the hang of it. 
So what happened? So, yep, we just did, um, we did several rounds of that. And I think by March, April timeframe, we were just like, ugh, it's still not working. This is just like, we knew IVF was the next step, but we just wanted a couple months off. So I think it it was around February that we were like, this probably isn't going to work this way. We're going to have to do IVF, but let's not think about it until springtime pretty much. So we took a few months or took those two months or however many just to relax and not do anything. And then in April is when we started getting everything set up for IVF. And then our first IVF round was at the very end of May is when they did the implantation or whatever Mm -hmm. uh, transfer. I forget all the words sound so foreign after a while. I know. Um, It's funny. It's like you kind of block everything out too. I know. Statistics and the terms and the... It is. I know. I know. So the day of the... Um, that they were putting everything into me, they said, we can put one embryo in or we can put two in. It's up to you. We recommend only doing one because they don't want, you know, high risk pregnancies and whatever. Twin Um, pregnancies are hard. Yeah. Right. And I was like, "Eh, okay, I'm, I'm such a pushover and I'm just like, okay. And my husband looked at me and he was like, are you sure? And I was like, no, but I don't want to, you know, I was like, no, but I just, if they think it's right, it's right. And, you know, he was like, no, babe, this is your body. This is your one. This is your chance. Like if you want to do two, you have to tell them right now you have to do two. And I was like, okay. Cause in my mind, I was like, I never want to fucking do this again. Like I want more than one kid. Like what if I, I only get one kid and then I have to do this all over again and then it doesn't work and, you know, just all those million things in your brain. And how old were you at this time, Ellen? 33. Okay. I was almost, so they say 35 is like the ancient years or whatever. Yes. Geriatric pregnancy is what they call my post-35 pregnancy. And I was like, excuse me. Excuse me. I'm really actually quite young. So yeah, I wasn't quite geriatric yet. (laughs) Yeah. So at the, they had started to get the first embryo ready. And then Ian was like, what? And he was like, she wants both. And so at the last second, they ended up putting both in and they both took. So it was awesome. We obviously have twins now. Yes. But it wasn't always like super rainbows and unicorns, right? Like the pregnancy was not easy. Tell us a little bit about that. The pregnancy was awful. I hated all of it. It actually started off terrible because the first, so obviously with IVF, they immediately do ultrasounds way before like a regular someone without fertility treatment who's pregnant would find out, you know, at like eight weeks, we find out at like three weeks that we're pregnant, you know? Right, right. But the first ultrasound, they saw that there were two sacs, um, but they only saw one or only could feel, I forget if you hear it or see it or whatever, one heartbeat at that time, because it's so tiny. They were like, there's only one heartbeat. So this is probably going to be disappearing twin syndrome. So they were like, congratulations, you're pregnant, but one of them's not going to make it. So it was like, 
it was so conflicting. Yes. That's <laughs> so I was rough. like, yay. But also what? Yes. Um, and so it just didn't, I mean, in my mind, I was like, no, there's two in there. It's twins. I was just going with, I knew it was twins. And um, I actually, for the next few weeks that we had to wait until we had our next ultrasound, like my husband and I had a few arguments because he didn't use, he he didn't say they or like use plural or something. And I would get so pissed at him. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, there's two in there. There are two. Like, come on. And he's like, it's, but they're not sure it's two. And I was like, oh, that's two. It's two. So it was kind of funny. But yeah. the next ultrasound we went into, they were like, Yep. So there's two heartbeats. And I was like, I fucking knew it. (laughs) Cause they were so negative the first time they were just like, Oh no, that I'll be, there's no way twin a is going to, going to make it like, there's just no, yeah. I mean, it just goes to show like, you know, your own body better than anybody else. Right. Like you had the gut feeling that that was going to happen. I absolutely did. And so twin A was 10 days behind. Like, so throughout our pregnancy, people still asked us, they were like, are you sure you did? I like, they were joking, but they were like, are you sure you did IVF? And you didn't just, um, you know, have sex 10 days apart and get pregnant twice, you oh, know? Right, right. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm like, uh, yeah, I know exactly when I got pregnant because they literally put it into my body. <laughs> at 9.32 on this Sunday, but because twin A was so much smaller and so far behind the whole pregnancy, it was, it was really interesting. But the pregnancy was miserable. I'm glad that I have nothing to compare it to because I've heard from women who had singletons before having twins that they were just so caught off guard with how miserable the twin pregnancy was comparatively. Yeah. Um, and so to me, it was just, I mean, the first trimester, I literally was nauseous all day, every day. I didn't throw, I only threw up a few times, but I could nap for like four hours every afternoon. Yeah. And then exhausted. go to bed at eight o'clock. Right. <laughs> Yeah. Um, I mean, the toll that it takes on your body and you've already been through so much. I know. And it's so weird at that point because you're not showing yet. Mm. So it's just like people that don't know are just like, what is wrong? You know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But um, I hate feeling nauseous and that was just my constant feeling. So that was a bummer. Can I ask something? And I hope this doesn't come out weird, but did it kind of remind you of feeling hungover? Like, did it bring back weird memories about the drinking it at all? It did. It didn't, it didn't like trigger me or anything okay. like being hungover, but yes, I've heard um, other people who aren't alcoholics, but people say it reminds them of just being hungover, but right, it is. It's that constant just feeling of like, ugh. Like, uh, I just, you just want to throw up so bad. Yeah. But it's, oh yeah. Just that nausea hangover feeling for sure. Uh-huh. Okay. And let's see. So I had, we took our baby moon around. They told us no more travel after 20 weeks. So that's super early for most singletons. It's like 37, 38. Uh-huh. I don't even know. 
Um, but because it was high risk, they said no travel after 20 weeks. So we planned our baby moon at like 17 weeks and 17 and 18 were the only weeks I felt good. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Throughout the whole pregnancy. Yeah. So it worked out that it happened to be on our baby moon. That was awesome. But as soon as we got back was when I started really showing. And so by, I think 24 weeks, they said is the weight I would have been for a full-term singleton. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. And so, because I'm I'm almost 5'9", and I'm like 125 pounds. I'm very tall and thin, skinny. Uh-huh. So everything is like in my stomach. Okay. And it was just like all in my stomach. Uh-huh. And it was so uncomfortable. I had to wear the belly belt every day. And, ugh. I was just miserable. I hated it. The thing that made me love it was when they finally started kicking. Yeah, that's Um, so cool. Yeah, that was... I think it's interesting too, and you bring up a point of like, when you've gone through, you know, a hard time getting pregnant or infertility, sometimes people feel like they're not allowed to complain about a pregnancy or about having a tough time with a newborn. And I just feel like, it's okay. You're human. You know, like it doesn't negate all the hardship that you went through and it doesn't mean that you're not grateful, but so I think sometimes people are hesitant to talk about it. So I'm glad that you did. It's so true because I do. I mean, when I was at work, sometimes I would feel like guilty that I was complaining about how I felt or, you know, just, I've been trying to get pregnant for so long and now I'm like, this sucks. I hate it. Yeah, exactly. But work, it was, oh my God, the third trimester. I'm lucky that I still have a job because I was literally homicidal. So we're all in like a cube farm type scenario. Yeah. And so literally everyone that would walk past me would want to say something about my stomach or want to ask how I was doing or right, exactly. it, it was, it was nice. You know, I'm glad that they're all wanting to check up on me, but yeah, you know, I also wanted to murder them all because I was just so hormonal. It yes. Was, and so uncomfortable too. Yes. So uncomfortable. Yeah. It was absolutely awful. So well, I did end up getting, um, let's see. So they, the babies were due February 19th was their due date. And by December, I was so overworked. I was like, this is awful. I hate it. hate all of it. I told my boss, basically, after Christmas, I was going to work from home until the babies came. But of course, there's all these paperwork. You have to sign so much paperwork to be able to work from home and all this stuff. And just getting all the paperwork done was such a fiasco. And I was just like, my God, this is so ridiculous and I remember (laughs) asked like I literally was in an HR person's office and I was like why is this so fucking hard (laughs) yeah I was like I'm sorry it's just the baby hormones (laughs) yeah for sure I was just a mess my water broke 36 weeks and three days so we went in and everything was going normal Obviously, with twins, you have to do, well, it's not obvious for people that don't know. So if you don't know, 
when you have twins or multiples, you have to deliver in an operating room because it's high risk. So that's uncomfortable in itself. (laughs) I was able to start pushing in the regular room. And then as soon as I started contracting a certain number, then they moved me to the the OR in case Mm -hmm. um, a C-section is needed for the second baby or anything goes wrong. And so I'm in this room. Oh, and with twins, there's like 14 people in the room. (laughs) So there's literally a million like so many people just hovering around, like yeah. in the corner talking about like, oh, hey, what'd you do on Saturday? Like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and I'm just like shoving humans out my vagina as they're talking about things. Um, <laughs> humans, multiple. <laughs> just so weird. So baby boy was born first, twin A. And so he was always the one that they never thought was going to make it. Yeah. And he was born, so I had them both vaginally. And when they were trying to do, like, get them all cleaned up, they put that thing, like, down their throat to suction everything out. Uh Uh-huh. It wouldn't go down. So they knew something was wrong with his um, airway. Oh, my gosh. Uh, And so as I'm trying to push baby B out, they come over and say... Um, we're going to have to take your son up to the NICU. Something's wrong. We're not sure what it is yet, mm, but scary. Yeah. So I'm just like, okay, do whatever you need to do. I'm trying to get this other baby out of my Right. So <laughs> um, Godspeed. Good luck. You know, I had no idea basically what they were saying. I was just like, okay, good. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. Do what he does. Um, yeah. And so then baby B was born. So we didn't find out the gender. So that's why I say baby A and baby B. We didn't know it was a boy and a girl until they were born, which is uh-huh. really awesome. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And he was born with, it's called tracheosophical fistula. And it's the trachea and esophagus just are never made correctly. And so if he had not had surgery right away, he would have just aspirated everything into his lungs and he would have died. Oh um, my gosh. So he had to have surgery the next morning. And so it was not at all like, here's your baby. You get to snuggle and like right. them and like have all this time. It was like one baby's out and something's immediately wrong. He has to go to the NICU. And so I didn't see him again. Then the second baby's out and it's like, okay, yay, it's a girl. And she she's fine. But I had to go back into my room and I was so sick. Um, I was throwing up everywhere. My delivery, like after delivery for me is more, is worse than actually having babies Mm, in my mind because I was so sick. I couldn't even stand up without getting dizzy and throwing up. Wow. And so I didn't even get to see either of my babies for like six hours. Okay. Uh, Because one was in the NICU and... Well, no, they were both in the NICU because they're twins. Um, They're required to go to the NICU as multiples. But he was in the NICU, obviously, with more concerning things than she was. Right. So I didn't even get to see them for several hours. And then she ended up being discharged and was able to stay in the room with me overnight. But baby boy had to stay in the NICU. So. Yeah, it was just kind of like what he was born with was nothing they could have seen in utero. So we had no idea like 
for twin pregnancies, you literally have so many ultrasounds. It's uh-huh. all the time. I was like, how the fuck could you not have seen this? But it's just something that you can't see. Thank you so much, Ellen. I'm Thank so glad you. we get to talk. I'm so glad that you are doing well. And my God, everything you went through, it's like intense, but I'm, I'm so happy that you're sharing this and the addiction, yeah. the addiction part too, I think is just super interesting. Like I, I know. said, I have a bunch of friends and family who's gone through that too. So I'm, you know, very familiar with uh, how hard that is. And I just appreciate, you know, like kudos to you for, for being, getting sober. And I know it's not easy. Okay, guys, thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Ellen. And Ellen, thanks again for just sharing all of that with us. You guys can follow Ellen at It's Ellen Elizabeth on Instagram, where she inspires women to see past addictions and infertility and transform their demons into dreams through radical honesty. And you know, we fucking love radical honesty. So thanks to Ellen. Thanks to all of you for listening. And I will talk to you next time. 